Hey everyone, thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Storybound. We appreciate all the kind comments we've received for this season, and we're very excited for this week. Meng Jin is the author of the novel Little Gods, a finalist for the NYPL Young Lions Award and LA Times First Fiction Prize, also long-listed for the Penn Open Book Award. She is a Kun Dimon Fellow and a David T.K. Wong Fellow. Her writing has appeared in some literary journals and magazines, as well as in the anthologies Pushcart Prize, Best of the Small Presses, and Best American Short Stories. Her next book, Self-Portrait with Ghost, a collection of short fictions, is forthcoming from Custom House in summer 2022. She is at work on a new novel, Mothers and Girls, a fake memoir, for which she received a 2021 Creative Capital Award. Today, she will be reading a section of her short story, In the Event, originally published in the Best American Short Stories. She will be accompanied by an original Storybound remix. Hi, I'm Meng Jin, and you're listening to Storybound. Today, I'll be reading from my short story, In the Event, originally published in the Three Penny Review and forthcoming in my collection of short stories, Self-Portrait with Ghost. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Storybound, presented by Lit Hub Radio and the Podglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. In just a little bit, you will be transported to the world of Chen Chen and Tony, as Chen Chen finds herself obsessing over the possibility of earthquakes and what exactly she will do if and when that situation arises. event of an earthquake, I texted Tony. We'll meet at the corner of Chinaman's Vista, across from the cafe with the rainbow flag. Jen had asked about our earthquake plan. We didn't have one. We were new to the city, if it could be called that. Tony described it to friends back home as a huge village, but very densely populated, I added, and not very agrarian. We had come here escaping separate failures on the opposite coast. Already the escape was working in this huge urban village under the dry, bright sky. 
we were beginning to regard our former ambitions as varieties of regional disease, belonging to different climates, different times. Firstly, Jen said, you need a predetermined meeting point in case you're not together and cell service is clogged, which it's likely to be because, you know, disasters. Jen was the kind of person who said things like, firstly, and because disasters. She was a local local, born and raised and stayed. Tony had met Jen a few years ago at an electronic music festival back east and introduced us thinking we'd get along. She had been traveling for work. Somehow we stayed in touch. We shared interests. She worked as a tech consultant, but composed music as a hobby. I made electronic folk songs with acoustic sounds. The ideal meeting place, Jen explained, is outside, walkable from both your workplaces and likely free of obstacles. Obstacles? Collapsed buildings, down power lines, blah, blah, hazmat, you know. Chinaman's Vista was the first meeting place that came to mind. It was a big grassy field far from the water on high ground. Cypress trees lined its edges. In their shade, you could sit and watch the well-behaved dogs of well-behaved owners let loose to run around. We had walked past it a number of times on our way from this place or that the grocery store, the pharmacy, the taqueria, and commented on its charm with surprise, forgetting we'd come across it before. In the event of a significant earthquake and the aftershocks that typically follow significant earthquakes, I imagined we would be safe there from falling debris at least, as we searched through the faces of worried strangers for each other. Other forces could separate or kill us. Landslides, tsunamis, nuclear war. I was aware that we lived on the side of a sparsely vegetated hill, that we were four miles from the ocean, a mile from the bay. To my alarmed texts, Tony responded that if North Korea was going to bomb us, this region would be a good target, reachable by missile, home to the richest and fastest growing industry in the world. Probably they would go for one of the cities south of us, he typed, where the headquarters of the big tech companies were based. Nuclear blast wind can travel at greater than 300M slash S, Tony wrote. Tony knew things like this. He clarified, meters per second, which gives us, I watched Tony's avatar think, approx three men to find shelter after detonation. More likely we'd get some kind of warning X hours before the bomb struck. Jen had a car. She could pick us up. We'd drive north as fast as we could. Jen's aunt, who lived an hour over the bridge, had a legit basement. 
concrete reinforced during the Cold War. I thought about the active volcano one state away, which, if it erupted, could cover the city in ash. One very large state away, Tony reminded me. But the ash that remained in the air might be so thick it obscured the sun, plunging this usually temperate coast into winter. I thought about the rising ocean, the expanding downtown at sea level built on landfill. Tony worked in the expanding downtown. Was Tony a strong swimmer? I asked with two question marks. His response, don't worry, Lil Chen Chen. If I die, I'll die. I was listening to an audiobook on 1.65x speed about a techno-dystopic future Earth under threat of annihilation from alien attack. The question was whether humans would kill each other first or survive long enough to be shredded in the fast-approaching weaponized supermassive black hole. Another question was whether humans would abandon life on Earth an attempt to continue civilization on spacecraft. Of course, there were not enough spacecraft for everyone. When I started listening, it was at normal 1.0 speed. Each time I returned, I switched the speed dial up by 0.05x. It was a gripping book, full of devices for sustaining mystery despite the obvious conclusion, I couldn't wait for the world to end. Tony and I were fundamentally different. What I mean is we sat in the world differently. He settling into the back cushions, noting with objective precision the grime or glamour of his surroundings while I hovered, nervous, at the edge of my seat. Often I felt, more often now, I couldn't even make it to the edge. Instead, I flitted from one space to another, calculating if I would fit, considering the cosmic feeling of unwelcome that emanated from wherever I chose to go. On the surface, Tony and I looked very much the same. We were more or less the same percentile in height and weight, and we both had thin, blank faces, their resting expressions betraying slight confusion and surprise. Our bodies were constructed narrowly of long, brittle bones, and our skin, pale in previous gray winters, now tanned easily to the same dusty brown. We weren't only both Chinese. Our families came from the same rural industrial province south of Shanghai, recently known for small goods manufacturing. But in a long reversal of fortunes, his family, business people who had fled to Hong Kong and then South Carolina, were now lower middle class second generation immigrants, while my parents, born from starving peasant stock, had stayed in China through its boom and emigrated much later to the States as members of the highly educated elite. Tony's family was huge. 
I guess mine was two, but I didn't know any of them. In this hemisphere, I had my parents, and that was it. A couple years ago, I did Thanksgiving with Tony's family. It was my first time visiting the house where he'd grown up. It was also the first time I had left my parents to celebrate a holiday alone. I tried not to guess what they were eating. Chinese takeout or leftover Chinese takeout. Even when I was around, my parents spent most of their time sitting in separate rooms, working. Chen Chen, his mother had cried as she embraced me. We're so happy you could join us. My arms rose belatedly, swiping the sides of her shoulders as she pulled away. She said my name like an American. The rest of the family did too. In fact, every member of Tony's family spoke with varied degrees of Southern drawl. It was very disorienting. In normal circumstances, Tony's English was incredibly bland, neutered of history like my own. But now I heard in it long-drawn diphthongs, wholesome curls of twang. Both his sisters had come, as had his three uncles and two aunts with their families, and two full sets of grandparents. His mom's mom recently remarried after his grandpa's death. I had never been in a room with so many Chinese people at once, but if I closed my eyes and just listened to the chatter. My brain populated the scene with white people wearing bandanas and jeans, which was accurate except for the white people part. The turkey had been deep fried in an enormous vat of oil. We had stuffing and cranberry sauce and ranch-flavored mashed potatoes, a Zhang family tradition, pecan and sweet potato and ginger pie. We drank beer cocktails. Bud Light and lemonade. No one regretted the lack of rice or soy sauce, or said with a disappointed sigh that we should have just ordered roast duck from Hunan Garden. It was loud. I shouted small talk and halfway introduced myself to various relatives as bursts of yelling and laughter erupted throughout the room. Jokes were told. Jokes. I had never heard people who looked like my parents. Making so many jokes, plates clinked, drinks sloshed, moving chairs and shoes scuffed the floor with a pleasing, busy beat. In the middle of all this, I was struck suddenly by a wave of mourning, though I wasn't sure for what. The sounds of a childhood I'd never had, the large family I'd never really know. Perhaps it was the drink. I think the beer aid was spiked with vodka, but I felt somehow that I was losing Tony then. That by letting myself know him in this way, I had opened a door through which he might one day slip away. In the corner of the living room, the pitch of the conversation changed. Tony's teenage cousin Harriet. Was yelling at her mother while Tony's mom sat at her side, loudly shaking her head. Slowly, the other voices in the room quieted until the tacit attention of every person was focused on this exchange. Others began to participate, some angry, 
Don't you dare speak to your mother like this. Some conciliatory. How about some pecan pie? Some anxious. Harriet's little sister tugging on her skirt. Harriet pushed her chair back angrily from the table. A vase fell over, dumping flowers and gray water into the stuffing. Harriet stormed from the room. For a moment, it was quiet. In my pocket, my phone buzzed. By the time I took it out, the air had turned loud and festive again. This happens every year, Tony had texted. I looked at him. He shrugged with resigned amusement. Around me, I heard casual remarks of a similar nature, comments on Harriet's personality and love life. Apparently, she had just broken up with a boyfriend, and nostalgic reminiscences of the year Tofu the dog had peed under the table in fright. It was like a switch had been flipped. In an instant, the tension was diffused. Injury and grievance transformed into commotion and fond collective memory. I saw then how Tony's upbringing had prepared him for reality in a way mine had not. His big family was a tiny world. It reflected the real world with uncanny accuracy, its little charms and injustices its pettinesses and usefulnesses. And so real-worldly forces struck him with less intensity without the paralyzing urgency of assault. He did not need to survive living like I did. He could simply live. The story's not over yet. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Meng Jin. And now we return from our break. I woke up to Tony's phone in my face. Are you okay? His mom had texted, followed by, Are you okay? Please respond, my dear son. Call ASAP, love mom. Followed by heart emojis and, inexplicably, an ice cream cone. His fathers and siblings and aunts and cousins and childhood friends had flooded his phone with similar messages. He scrolled through the unending ribbon of notifications sprinkled with news alerts. I turned on my phone. It gave a weak buzz. Jen had texted us at 4.08 a.m. Did you guys feel the earthquake? I ran outside and left the door open and now I can't find Pickle. Pickle was Jen's cat. A lamp had fallen over in the living room. 
We had gotten it at a garage sale and put it on a stool to simulate a tall floor lamp. Now it was splayed across the floor, shade bent, glass bulb dangling but miraculously still intact. When we lifted it, we saw a dent in the floorboards. The crooked metal frame of the lamp could no longer support itself, and so we laid it on its side like a reclining nude. There were other reclining forms too. Tony had put toy action figures among my plants and books. All but Wolverine had fallen on their faces or backs. He sent a photo of a downed Obi-Wan Kenobi to his best nerd friends back home. He seemed strangely elated that he would be able to say, look, this happened to us too, and without any real cost. Later, while Tony was at work, I pored over earthquake preparedness maps on the internet. Tony's office was in a converted warehouse with a large glass window on the edge of the expanding downtown. On the map, this area was marked in red, which meant it was a liquefaction zone. I didn't know what liquefaction meant, but it didn't sound good. Around lunchtime, Tony sent me a YouTube video showing a tray of vibrating sand on which a rubber ball bobbed in and out as if through waves in a sea. He'd forgotten about the earthquake already. His caption said, so cool. I messaged back, when the big one hits, you're the rubber ball. That afternoon, I couldn't stop seeing his human body tossed in and out through the rubble of skyscrapers. I reminded myself that Tony had a stable psyche. He was the kind of person you could trust not to lose his mind, not in a disruptive way, at least. But I didn't know if he had a strong enough instinct for self-preservation. Clearly, he didn't have a good memory for danger. And he wasn't resourceful, at least not with physical things like food and shelter. His imagination was better for fantasy than for worst case scenarios. I messaged, if you feel shaking, move away from the windows, get under a sturdy desk and hold onto a leg. If there is no desk or table nearby, crouch by an interior wall. Whatever you do, cover your neck and head at all times. He sent me a sideways heart. I watched his avatar think and type for many moments. I'm serious, I wrote. Finally, he wrote back. Um, what if my desk is by the window? Should I get under the desk or go to an interior wall? I typed. Get under your desk and push it to an interior wall while covering your head and neck. I imagined the rubber ball. I imagined the floor undulating, dissolving into sand. I typed, Hold on to any solid thing you can. I couldn't focus on work. I had recorded myself singing a series of slow glissandos in E minor 
which I was trying to distort over a cello droning C. It was supposed to be the spooky intro before the drop of an irregular beat. The song was about failure's various forms, the wild floating quality of it. I wanted to show Tony I understood what he had gone through back east, at least in its primal movement and shape, that despite the insane specificity of his suffering, he was not alone. Now all I could hear were the vibrations of sand, the movements of people and buildings falling. I went to the hardware store. I bought earthquake-proof cabinet latches and L-bars to bolt our furniture to the walls. According to a YouTube video called Seeing with Earthquake Eyes, it was best to keep the bed at least 15 feet from a window or glass or mirror, anything that could shatter into sharp shards over your soft sleeping neck. Our bed was directly beneath the largest window in the apartment, which looked out into a dark shaft between buildings. The room was small. I drew many diagrams, but could not find a way to rearrange the furniture. 15 feet from the window would put our bed in the unit next door. I bought no shatter seals to tape over the windows. I assembled the necessary things for an emergency earthquake kit. Bottled water, instant ramen, gummy vitamins, flashlight, batteries, wrench, and a cheap backpack to hold everything. I copied our most important contacts from my phone and laminated two wallet-sized emergency contact cards in case cell service or electricity went down. I bought a whistle for Tony. It blew at high C, a pitch of urgency and alarm. I knew he would never wear it. I'd make him tie the whistle to the leg of his desk. If the sand and ball video was accurate and a big earthquake struck during business hours, there was a chance Tony would end up buried in a pile of rubble. I imagined him alive, curled under the frame of his desk. In this scenario, the desk would have absorbed most of the impact and created a small space for him to breathe and crouch. He would be thirsty, hungry, afraid. I imagined his dry lips around the whistle and the dispirited emergency crews layers of rubble above him, leaping up, shouting, someone's down there, someone's down there. There's a little bit more story to go. We'll be right back after our last commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Meng Jin. 
And now we return for our final chapter. My office had no windows. It was partially underground, the garage-adjacent storage room that came with our apartment. We had discarded everything when we moved, so we had nothing to store. The room had one outlet and was just big enough for my recording equipment and a piano. It was soundproof, and the internet signal was weak. The recordings I made in there had a muffled, amplified quality, like listening to a loud fight through a door. The building where Tony and I rented was old, built in the late 19th century, a dozen years before the big earthquake of 1904. It had survived that one, but still by modern building codes, it was what city regulators called a soft story property. According to records at City Hall, it had been seismically retrofitted by mandate five years ago. I saw evidence of these precautions in the garage, extra beams and girding along the foundations, the boilers and water tanks bolted to the walls. I couldn't find my storage workroom in any of the blueprints. Tony thought I was hypocritical to keep working there given my new preoccupation with safety. I liked the idea of making music in a place that didn't technically exist, even if it wasn't up to code. Or maybe it was. I imagined, in fact, that the storage rooms had been secret bunkers. Why else was there a power outlet? I felt at once safe and sober inside it, this womb of concrete, accompanied by the energies of another age of panic. Now I filled the remaining space with 10 gallons of water, enough for two people for five days, boxes of shin noodles and canned vegetable soup, saltine crackers, tins of spam, canned tuna for Tony, who no longer ate land animals, a small camping stove I found on sale, I moved our sleeping bags and our winter coats down. My office, my bunker. More and more, it seemed like a good place to sit out a disaster. If we ran out of bottled water, the most vital resource, there stood the bolted water heaters just a few steps away. Holy shit, Tony said when he came home from work. Have you seen the news? I pursed my lips. I didn't read the news anymore. The sight of the new president's face made me physically ill. 
Instead, I buried myself in old librettos and scores, spent whole days listening to the kind of music that made every feeling cell in my brain vibrate with forgetting. The Ring Cycle, Queen's Albums in Chronological Order, Glenn Gould huffing and purring through the Goldberg variations. Tony did the opposite. Once upon a time, he had been a consumer of all those nonfiction tomes vying for the Pulitzer Prize, big books about social and historical issues. He used to send me articles that took multiple hours to read. I'd wondered when he ever did work. Now he only sent me tweets. He waved his phone in my face. Taking up the entire screen was a photograph of what appeared to be hell. Hell, as it appeared in medieval paintings and Hollywood films. Hills and trees burning so red they appeared liquid, the sky pulsing with black smoke. A highway cut through the center of the scene, and on the highway, impossibly, were cars fleeing and entering the inferno at top speed. This is Loma, Tony said. Loma? It's an hour from here? We were there last month? We were? That brewery with the chocolate? Jen drove? Oh, yeah. Wow. According to the photograph's caption, the whole state was on fire. Tony's voice was incredulous, alarmed. Have you gone outside today? I hadn't. We walked to Chinaman's Vista, where there was a view of the city. Tony held my hand, and I was grateful for it. The air was smoky. It smelled like everyone was having a barbecue. If I closed my eyes, I could imagine I was in my grandmother's village in Zhejiang, those hours before dinner when families started firing up their wood-burning stoves. People are wearing those masks, Tony said. Look, like we're in fucking Beijing. Tony had never been to Beijing. I had. The smog wasn't half as bad as this. We sat on a bench in Chinaman's Vista and looked at the sky. The sun was setting. Behind the gauze of smoke, it was a brilliant salmon orange, its light so diffused you could stare straight at it without hurting your eyes. The sky was pink and purple, textured with plumes of color. It was the most beautiful sunset I had ever seen. Around us, the light cast upon the trees and grass and purple bougainvillea, an otherworldly yellow glow more nostalgic than any Instagram filter. I looked at Tony, whose face had relaxed in the strange beauty of the scene, and it was like stumbling upon a memory of him, his warm, dry hand clasping mine, the two of us looking and seeing the same thing.
Thank you to Meng Jin for reading the first half of her story in the event. You can read the rest of it when you buy yourself a copy of the Best American Short Stories 2020, edited by Curtis Sittenfeld. Quite a few of the authors this season actually appeared in this anthology, so I highly recommend you shop for it at your favorite local bookseller. That's the Best American Short Stories 2020. And as is the case with every episode, the sound design and remix was created by Jude, that's me, and the music sampled in this episode was by Valente and DJ Dens the Rooster. Thank you to Marine Cole and our friends at HarperCollins Publishers. Thank you to the podcast studio at 300 Broadway in San Fran, and thank you to Epidemic Sound. Our production coordinator is Jordan Aaron. Our mix and engineer is Tim Carplus. Storybound is scored, arranged, produced, and hosted by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. We encourage you to please follow us on Instagram and on Twitter at StoryBoundPod. You can also tweet at me directly at Jude Brewery. New episodes are released every Tuesday. We'll see you then. Universe.